I'm Cassidy Hall. I'm Carl McCollman. I am Kevin Johnson, and we are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by listeners like you. Please visit www.patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Welcome to another episode of Encountering Silence and today's topic mysticism and silence. And this is a wonderful topic. We've skirted around it a one a whole bunch of times and and now it's time to get right at it. And I think a great way to do this is to approach it through Carl, our very own Carl McCollman's new book, The Little Book of Christian Mysticism, which is now out and is available on Carl's website, on Amazon, in multiple multiple places. And through our show notes. Ah, and through the show notes as well. Excellent. So I think a a way forward here, I would like to ask the initial question. Carl, you are known as a person who writes about and teaches about mysticism. Define for me mysticism. Kevin, to answer your question, I'd like to start with reading from an author that I think we all three love dearly, Maggie Ross. And this comes from her book, Writing the Icon of the Heart in Silence Beholding. And she says this, Finally, a word about words. The word mystic appears in this book only three times, twice in quotations and once as a negative. It is a word that has, in my view, become entirely useless. It has acquired nuances of romanticism, exoticism, and self-absorption. In addition, far too many studies of mysticism and spirituality are based on a modern and narcissistic notion of experience as self-authenticating that corresponds neither to the way the brain works nor to notions of experience in the ancient and medieval worlds, which in fact do correspond. To the way the brain works. Now, I want to tell you what's what's funny is that um, the my copy of of uh, Maggie Ross's book was borrowed by one of the Trappist monks out in Conyers. Nice. And he marked he marked it up. So I have <laughs> I have I, ha, I have a monk's comments. And so he wrote next to it. He wrote yes, but. <laughs> oh, did he write anything else? Yeah. Or leave no, it at that. Said dot dot dot. And, and so I kind of am in the yes, but right. I agree with everything that Maggie Ross has said. I think it's a word right. that has been has been misused in the academic world and it has been misused kind of in the pop spirituality world in very different ways. But 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 both really in ways that are not particularly useful. And yet, like like my Trappist friend, yes, but and I think the but is that, like it or not, it's a word that we've inherited. It's a word that's been around for several hundred years. It's a word that points back to a phenomenon, at least in the Christian world. And of course, there are analogs in the other wisdom traditions, but a phenomenon that does go back literally thousands of years. So 
I always like to start with the etymology, and I would say mysticism mm-hmm. comes from the same Greek word, and for you Greek geeks out there, it's M-U-E-O, which I think is pronounced mueo, but it's the same Greek word that we get mystery and that we also get mute from. Mm-hmm. So think about the mute button on your, on your remote. Right. Yeah. And, and so, of course, to bring it back to our topic... Mute is directly linked to silence. And mystery is is linked to that place where cognition or language, logic, simply begin to break down. Syntax becomes frayed at the edges. And so I, if I had to come up with a, with a kind of a snappy definition of mysticism, I would say mysticism is that realm of human life or of, of spirituality. Again, you know, these are all problematic words. Experience is a very problematic word, as Maggie Ross pointed out. But that realm where we encounter mystery. And for those of us who work within a theistic framework, mystery can be with a capital M. We can talk about the divine mystery or the ultimate mystery or, the, or, the, or mystery that is conscious and that is sentient. But it's still mystery. You know, as... as um, the, the Syrian mystic, uh, uh, Pseudo uh, Dennis or Pseudo Dionysius, points out that anything we say about God ultimately fails, and, and that there's a level on which we're actually on safer ground talking about what God is not than talking about what God is. Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of a classic, kind of a, a mystical, I guess, strategy, if you will, for, um, for encountering the divine. So I know that's a lot of words, but mm-hmm. if you want mysticism, think silence and think mystery. And the point where those two intersect, that's where mysticism lives. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And and we had a conversation earlier, kind of the three of us, about how this has been misinterpreted in so many places and how it's been ill-informed in so many places, which is even interesting to use the word ill-informed because – the idea of uh, it being informed uh, removes what it is to some degree as you're talking about, you know, silence and you're talking about mystery and mysticism. And Carl, you've you've written about mysticism and silence and mystery in a number of your books, not not just um, the one we're discussing today, but also the big book of Christian mysticism, not just the little one, Befriending Silence, of course, Answering the Contemplative Call, of course, and, and a number of others. And one thing I was particularly struck by in the little book of Christian mysticism was on page 201. This kind of reminds me of what we're talking about when you say, if you're holding something in your hand, you won't be able to pick up anything else. First, you have to set down whatever it is you're holding, and then you're free to grasp the new item. That's common sense, but it applies equally well to the spiritual life. A cup must be empty before it may be filled. A mind must release its anxious grasp on cherished beliefs in order to open to learning something new. A heart must be empty of our transitory attachments in order to receive the wine of divine love. Whether it is a matter of renunciation or indifference, non-attachment always makes liberation possible. So I love this part um, because it you know goes into what we're talking about here when we talk about definitions and defining and addressing this way that people get stuck in definitions and how, mm-hmm. you know, even Carl, when you were answering the question, what is mysticism, how there are words we're trying to use, but 
uh, they don't necessarily point to what we what we are really trying to express. Um, it's deeper than that, and it's more infinite than that. So, I really appreciate what you two have just said there because uh, this discussion of definitions it's really important. And I know I was picking on Carl a little bit by starting off asking him to define mysticism because it is been fraught. Uh, it with controversy in the academic world, and it spills over into you know pop spirituality and and pop religious culture as well. And <clears throat> I know that Carl does a really good job of holding to the tradition, so that's why I I was comfortable with asking him that question. And really, the issue here is is that just the words have changed definition over the years. The word experience means something different now than it originally did. The word mysticism goes right back all the way, as Carl says, it's in scripture. You know, we the word is even connected with. Uh, what St. Paul uses when we talk about sacraments. Uh, we don't have the word sacrament. We have the word mysterion, which is associated with mystical and rituals and silence and prayer. So it's all lined up here. So this isn't some added bonus, but the problem becomes is that the word mysticism has shifted in, in discussion, and so then there's been all sorts of debates depending upon the philosophical school you're in, whether you're a Thomist or a Neo-Thomist or a postmodern or blah, 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 you know, and maybe the people uh, who don't study mysticism don't care about that, but it really does have something to say because it's just as Cassidy said, if we don't know what we're talking about, if we can't gesture to this thing, which is paradoxical and subtle, then people are, might not be talking about the same thing. You could be saying the word silence, as we've discussed many times on this podcast, and there's multiple definitions. Are you talking about toxic silence? Are you talking about silence as something holy? Are you talking about silence and whatever? And so the word mysticism here is something like that. It's it's kind of a walking through that minefield of what do you mean? And yeah. so I was happy to hear that beginning of the conversation there. You both kind of tightened it up a little bit. Well, I think that the the beauty maybe of kind of post-modernity you know, the idea of deconstruction, the idea of, um, of, uh, who's a Derrida who suggests that, you know, that, that, you know, all writing ultimately subverts itself and that, you know, the meaning of every word is, is deferred to, you know, additional language, additional signifiers and so forth that, you know, that there is this level in which all of our language is provisional and is incomplete and is somewhat paradoxical and somewhat self-contradictory. And what I think is beautiful about, you know, mysticism, quote unquote, is that here you have this, and I think you could just as legitimately say mysticism is a literary genre. It is a genre of writing in, you know, certainly in the Christian tradition, but again, in other traditions, there are parallels Yes, uh, of, of people talking about their encounter with silence, their encounter with mystery, their encounter with the heart or the soul or, or you know, the self, big S or little s, all of that is kind of in the stew. But you go back and you read, again, Pseudo Dionysius, or you read John of the Cross, you read The Cloud of Unknowing, Meister Eckhart, any of these great, you know, to use the fancy word, apophatic mystics. And again and again and again, what they are doing in their language is they're subverting language and they're subverting you know, they talk about experience and then they subvert the whole concept of experience. And and I think that that's, there's a lot of grace there. And again, for our purposes, a real invitation into, into the splendors of silence. But again, it makes it difficult to talk about. 
And what I think a lot of people do is they, you know, they just default to mysticism is about the experience of God. Now, I'm not as allergic to that as Maggie Ross is, you know, but but I, I see why Maggie, why she is allergic to that, because what I immediately go is, well, what does that mean? Exactly. What, what, what are you really saying? And I think most people, you know, then they'll say, well, it's about a feeling. Right. You know, you know, uh, you know, I feel God. And, you know, it's like, OK, well, and then what and then what, you know, right. Is it is it just it makes you happy? You know, is mysticism about being happy? That's what I, I think a, there's a scholar named Don Cupid who suggests mysticism is a strategy for religious happiness. Now, I, I disagree with that. So but I, I think if, <laughs> if you're operating within this kind of deconstructionist box, that's the only way you can make sense of it. Right. Um, but if but if you can can step maybe deeper into the mystery than I think a lot of people in the academy are willing to do, then you realize that no, this is really about encounter, right? You know, and again, it's about you know, it's about unknowing and about paradox and about wonder, and and all of that. And then we're still in the realm of language, right? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and that all of this language is ultimately saying, "Don't look at me, look at the silence." Carl, I love what you're saying, uh, Kevin. You too. It's almost as if we dive deeper into these places that do not have words, that do not host language, we're stripped further and further away from language. But like Carl was just saying, we still come away using words. So, <laughs> so at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's no uh, better or worse. It's no more wrong or right than someone using the language they do have to express, whether it's, you know, an experience of God, you know, that, that, might be what it is for someone. And, and it certainly is, but it's just interesting the way that, you know, that once we deepen that, um, how we continue to still strive to use language to, to clothe it. But Carl, I want to ask you a question about kind of just, you know, the layman, the new person to mysticism. Um, why does it matter? And also, I want to know why or what you would hope that they would get from your book, uh, this the little book of Christian mysticism. Great questions. Well, well yeah, thank you. Um, I think to address the question, why does mysticism matter? We really have to go back to you know one of my favorite quotations from a 20th century figure, and that's the the Jesuit theologian Karl Rahner, who wrote an essay back in the 60s on the the church of the future. And in that essay, he basically says the Christian of the future will be a mystic or simply will not exist at all. And, and I think, you know, and then he dies in the eighties. Okay. Well, he, he writes this in the sixties. So it's 50 years later, a half a century. And I like to point out to people that we are the future he was writing about. He wasn't writing about 2000 years from now. He was writing about 50 to hundred years from when he was writing. So we're it. And we can all see the evidence of kind of the negative part of his comment. You know, churches are closing. Churches are being shuttered. Churches that are hanging on have declining membership and everybody is in their, you know, 70s or older. And um, it's just 
you know, Christianity, at least in its institutional form, is in a state of crisis. In the Catholic world, there's a crisis of vocations. There aren't enough priests. There aren't enough nuns and monks. And and if you, frankly, if you took away immigration, the Catholic Church in North America would be in the same boat that the Protestant churches are. You know, you go to, you know, like, like, you know, my church on Sunday morning, it's packed. And, you know, the, the Disciples of Christ Church across the street, you know, only has 20 cars in the parking lot. But Catholicism in America is being supported by immigration. And, and you know, all it's going to take is a slight shift in, in immigration patterns or just in whatever demographics. And then, and then suddenly that same issue is, is presented. So, so, so Christianity in its institutional form is in a state of crisis. But let's look at the positive side of what Karl Rahner said. The Christian of the future to exist needs to be a mystic. Okay. Back to the question, what is a mystic? You know, and now let's try to stay away from kind of some of the more scholarly or philosophical issues, and let's just really kind of, kind of settle into the heart that a mystic is someone for whom their faith is, is shaped and nurtured and fed by mystery, by silence, by paradox, by love, by compassion, by wisdom, as opposed to, or, or, or as an alternative to proposition, dogma, doctrine, theology, as it has become. You go back maybe to the fourth century, and when an early contemplative or an early mystic like Evagrius talks about theology, he's talking about something a lot different than what you see in, in getting published by the university presses today. You know, the, the true theologian prays. And to be a theologian, one must be a person of prayer. That was, that was the understanding. And, and spirituality and theology really were the same thing for many, many centuries. So, so this idea is, is not that we abandon having an informed faith. I think that, that we need to be really clear about this, that, that, that mysticism is not the flight from reason. And I think that, again, you know, there are some problems within institutional Christianity where there is kind of an anti-intellectualism, and that, that creates problems of its own. So, so this question of having an informed faith and, and, and an honest faith, a faith that reckons with science, that reckons with politics, that reckons with, with post-modernity, you know, and, 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 and the, the issues that we're all struggling with, but does so out of a place that says, look, we're, we're, you know, we're in this monkey tent for love. We're here for compassion. We're here for, for relationship. That's, that's what it's all about. And so mysticism is that dimension of, of the love of Christianity. Again, I'm speaking as a Christian, but you can talk about other kinds of mysticisms. But Christian mysticism, it's that dimension of Christianity that pertains to the love affair that we have with the divine, with God, with the mystery, with spirit. And so that can be, you know, as, as awe-inspiring as someone like Julian of Norwich, who has 24 hours of amazing visions and then spends 20 years in theological reflection over what that one night of visions meant, and has said things that, frankly, I think we're still unpacking 600 years later. But then on the, other, on the other end of the continuum, you have a Therese of Lisieux, you know, who dies when she's in her 20s. Her, her, her journals, which have been published, read like, like, like a bourgeois French 
kind of schoolgirl kind of a thing. You know, she was not educated. Her faith is very simple, very down to earth, but it's heartfelt and it's authentic and it's real. And she says, look, I'm not, I'm not this big fancy theologian. I'm not a, I'm, I'm not a scholar. I'm not going to be somebody doing great things for God, but I can do little things for God and I can do those little things with love. And if you hear the echoes in that in Mother Teresa of Calcutta, well, Mother Teresa took her name from Teresa of Avila and Teresa of Lisieux. So you, you see, you see that, that lineage in her as well. So the Christian of the future will be a mystic, which is to say a Christian who's comfortable with, with silence, who's comfortable with mystery, who's comfortable with paradox and ambiguity, but who moves into all of that for the sake of love, the love of the divine and the love of one another. And I would also add the love of self. We often give that short shrift, but we need to acknowledge that. And of course, Jesus makes it really interesting when he says, oh, and while you're at it, love your enemies. So, um, so th- there are four loves. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Four Loves, but I like Jesus's four loves. He was, again, he was using Greek language. It was kind of a scholarly book. Yeah, love God, love your neighbors, love yourself, and even love your enemies. That's the heart of the mystical life right there. Work on those four. Yeah. Beautiful. Right. And, and you know, it's, it's wonderful here because I think that answer ties in with everything we've talked up, you know, about. Uh, you know, Cassidy asked the question, why is it important? And right before that, she made the comment about, you know, the, how language seems to fall apart and yet we need language to talk about this. And the reason, you know, the reason Maggie is so allergic to the word experience is is really not because experience is evil, is but it connects exactly with what Carl has suggested, that if we're going to learn to love, and if we're going to be very spiritual, especially in the Christian tradition, there's the sense of letting go of self, is that if you're going to turn to God, there has to be this kind of letting go of self. So that goes right back to that quote that Cassidy gave about letting go. So letting go of something so that you can have something else. And in our culture, the word experience keeps it focused on us. There isn't, yeah. this, there isn't the space for something else. The, hence the word encounter is to say, yes, you, it's something, it, it's part of your participation in life, your engagement with life. We're not saying it's theoretical. It is happening to, with, and through you and for you and everything else. You're there. But you're very, what this signal is, is that you're self-forgetful. You're not yeah. focused on self. You're turned out. And it gets right to what Carl said. You're turned out to the mystery of self, uh, mystery of others, the mystery of the divine, the mystery of your enemy, the mystery of, it's so you're turning out. And so when we say, oh, I had an experience of God, that's really about, wow, I had this wonderful feeling. And that's important, Okay. Yeah. There's no rejection by Maggie, myself, or anybody else who wants to say, get rid of that. No, you need that. You need to have and develop experience. But if, if that becomes all encompassing, if that's the only lens, well, then, the, then you're actually precluded from going into this kind of mystery that you're talking about, Carl. So I think that that's great. And the final thing, too, that you added there was that it's this rational. This idea of theology being rational, well, in originally in the church, ancient church, contemplation was the highest form of rationality. 
it it was when you actually let go of your ideas so you can hear have new ideas. You can be open and you would rest and you'd listen. And so, you know, we have a very different view of rationality now, and so we don't. And contemplation has disappeared. So I think this wonderful point that Carl Rahner's made that you're citing and that we're everybody's, you know, that's, I think we're in a contemplative renaissance. You see that with Merton, Keating, all these people out there in the world talking about this because it's a necessary piece. So I, I appreciate your answer very much. Well, here's a way to think about it. You know, there's that verse in scripture, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And when, when I, I lead retreats, I love to point out, I say that, that it's a valid statement. But what people miss is the word beginning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It is not the end of wisdom. And then you have to hold that, again, here's a paradox, hold that with, in 1 John, perfect love casts out fear. So if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the culmination of wisdom is the love of God. Yes. Here's an analogy. Experience is the beginning of mysticism. Yes. Uh, and I think maybe why there's so much language, you know, you pick up, you know, a lot of books. I've written this um, on blogs and so forth where people will say, I am drawn to mysticism because I want an experiential faith. That's right. I think that's great. But let that be your starting point. Mm. And not not your ending point. And so, if 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 the if the experience of God is the beginning of mysticism, then God's encounter with you is the end of mysticism. Mm. You know, because again, taking it, you know, that whole dying to self thing, that that not I but Christ who lives within me, that you know, that mysticism is ultimately this question of can I open my heart, and can I receive the pouring of the love of God through the Holy Spirit. That again is scripturally promised. That's Romans 5 5. But if I if I make that leap of faith, if I if I make that gesture of trust and I open my heart, God will change me forever. And so, you know, so it's it's a scary thing. I'm no longer in the driver's seat. You know, when when it's I experience God, I'm the subject, God's the object, I'm in the driver's seat. I wonder if we could take that a step further and even say that uh, you know, the, the encounter isn't the end, so to speak, um, of mysticism, but instead it's the the grasping and naming of the encounter. Once we meet God, right, once we go get past that beginning and once we encounter God, you know, I, I might argue that we could stay there forever if we stop naming it. Right. You know, so it, it so the encounter isn't necessarily the end, but the end is the naming of the encounter. Well, then you're does back, that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Because then once you start naming, you're right back in experience because you're back in words, right, you're barking. Right. So, but I like I like the way the way Carl's using it because the word end there is paradoxical because it doesn't mean mm. ending; it means the target. It means the goal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, end as an yeah. end as a telos, uh, and I, yes. I I use this end point right on my yeah. website. Uh, my website is called the end of words, and I purposely use that to mean like on some mm -hmm. level silence, but then also what are words pointing to? What's the goal? Yeah. What's the target? Yeah. And yeah. and that's the whole point to hold that in balance. So when Carl goes the end of it, 
he's purposely mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he's playing he's playing with us you know yeah, he's messing yeah. with our heads right don't there. trick me like that carl <laughs> <laughs> well and, and well, again perfect love casts out fear you know so so we say mm-hmm. the end of wisdom is is love but mm-hmm. love is not static right. i mean that's right. the beautiful right. thing about this is that that the mystical life is you know and it, it reminds me of the cloud of unknowing which says that that the perfect life can be begun on earth but can only you know, be finished, if you will, and again, kind of in that telos sense, in eternity. And, and the, you know, this idea that, that eternity is this ever-evolving flower, this ever-evolving kind of, yes. kind of, you know, the universe giving birth to new universes and to, to new dimensions of divine consciousness. And, you know, and we are called to be part of that dance. You know, and I have no idea what that means after we die, but that's a that's a pretty exciting kind of model or metaphor to bring right here and now into life today. You know, and it's like, okay, how can I live my relationships so that they're open ended, so that that they're they're in service of possibility and they're in service of new new creativity and new generativity and you know expansion and, and new relationships. And so, that, yeah. you know, that's what you know. I th- I think. Christianity has been trammeled for too long with this kind of closed game system where Mm. you play the game and if you win, you go to heaven. If you lose, you go to hell. If you almost win, you go to purgatory. But if you're a if you're a Protestant, then you don't even have that option. You know, I mean, but it's this closed system kind of model. And, And I think mysticism just blows that wide open. And mysticism Amen. says, we, this is about, about, you know, the, the ongoing presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, which means that, that this is ever new and it's ever exciting and, you know, and that there's new possibilities. And, and, you know, I think it's, it's not inconsequential, um, that kind of the, the Renaissance of mysticism in the 20th century, when we talk about Karl Rahner, Evelyn Underhill, Thomas Merton, you know, figures like that, Carol Hauslander, who kind of bring mysticism back in, in the 20th century. This is happening either right before or during the Second Vatican Council, mm-hmm. when, when you see, see this, this theology of this kind of open-ended and open system theology, which has certainly had repercussions, at least in the mainline Protestant world as well. You know, it's, it, I think it's, it's exciting, you know, kind of to be a follower of Jesus Christ in this context today, because there's there's just there's a lot of doors that are open that were kind of locked shut 50 years ago. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know. Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath and be present in this 30 seconds of silence. So, and it's the the perpetual the perpetual unknown. I mean, as your book points to, there's so many different ways to say the quote unquote same thing. Um, there's so many different voices, all you know, as in the list you just named of people um, that appear in your book. And I'm wondering if you have a favorite 
um, either section that you wrote or a quote in, in the book here? Well, you know, the book is basically set up in 33 sections. And I was, it's funny because I was going after um, John Clinicus's The Ladder of Desi- Divine Ascent. And then after I finished the book, I realized he only has 30 chapters. But Jesus, you know, said Jesus lived 33 years. So, so there you go. 33 years of Jesus's nice. life, 33 chapters, you know, and then they're divided, you know, following the classical model of purification, illumination, and union. So, you know, 11 chapters with each of those, but I, but I, instead of the word union, I use the word deification, you know, deification or divinization or theosis, which I think is, is an important theological concept that again has, has been lost. It's almost been erased in the West and it really needs to be reclaimed. So, um, but what I'm going to do is I want to turn to that, that third section, I, oh, divinization, divinization, deification are essentially the same word. Nice little Jesuit touch there, because that's the word that Teilhard de Chardin uses, divinization. But uh, the first section of of the divinization section, we're on page um, about 185 to 187 here. It's chapter 23, and it's this is the chapter on silence. So I lead off the discussion of divinization with with silence, and so. You know, just just to, uh, you know, I I quote Dorothy Soul here. I quote Julian of Norwich, uh, Psalm sixty two verse five. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. My hope is from Him. My hope is from God. You know, then getting into Bernard of Clairvaux, John of the Cross, and some of these. The way I structured the book, there are some of these mystics that appear in every chapter or almost every chapter, and then there's each chapter has a handful of kind of like electives, you know, people that maybe aren't in the entire book, but they just show up here and there. But like, like, here's this quote from, from pseudo Dionysius or Dionysius the Areopagite, he's also called Trinity, lead us beyond all knowledge and light to the highest summit of your mystic word. Now he's writing this in the sixth century. This is around the year 500 to the highest summit of your mystic word, where your simple, absolute and changeless mysteries Rest hidden in the luminous darkness of your silence. That needs to be engraved on the front of every church. You know, and and then John of the Cross, the father spoke, you know, it's gendered language, but again, he's right in the 16th century. The father spoke one word, which was his son. And this word he speaks always in eternal silence. And in silence must it be heard by the soul. Right. You know, this, my friends, this, this, this is why I'm, I'm doing this crazy stuff that we're doing. George Maloney, who was a Jesuit priest, he eventually, I think he became an Orthodox towards the end of his life. Um, love needs no language, but it does express itself in perfect silence. Mm. You know, and so it just, you know, it just goes on. And then I love this quote from the Quakers. Speak only when your words are an improvement on silence. <laughs> that makes me just want to be quiet, you know? Right. <laughs> well, I mean, and it's, it's a beautiful thing because I, I, I appreciate very much you saying the, the words of, uh, of, of Dionysius need to be on every church because you're right. Deification, theosis, divinization, it is the teaching of the church. And yet you don't hear it preached that way. 
but the whole point, well, union, the, the other word people have used is union, but that's the sense when you and God, this is what happens in silence, right? It's it, you and God, you can't tell the distinction. Who's there? Is it you? Is it God? Is it both? Is it neither? Is it not? You know, it's a mess. It, it, when when encounter happens, self is gone, and and yet something's still happening. Uh, it's what is happening. I can't tell you because as soon as I tell you, as Cassidy says, as soon as I tell you, I'm labeling it, and now we've fallen out of it, and we're broken we've it, and, out of it. You know, so like it's it's. But that's you have united with ultimate love. You're there with this agapic love, and you're united, and you're there, and you're present. And I get being precise in language. Uh, academics want to do that, and so they want to say, listen, you aren't God, and God and you are separate. I get that, but then every mystic will say to you, yes, but, you know, right back to that, as you, it's the monk put next to the word, yes, but, because I, who is there? Even St. Augustine, the great saints of the church, will be like, you know, where, where's God? God's like right here. I thought I was searching for you, God, but it was you searching for me. Like it gets, everything gets flipped on its head uh, when you, when you enter into this realm. And that's, that's what's fun. And if anybody who's ever tapped silence, who's ever touched it, recognizes this, they bump into this and they go, Ooh, okay. Okay. And sadly, as you said, Christianity for the last, since the Reformation, we've played word games. We're arguing about definitions and propositions, and and there is a place for that. There is a place for a catechism. There is a place to define and explain and why I say this, but I don't say that, and why there's quote-unquote heresy or false teachings. There's places for all of that. But that becomes our, our default, and then we live in our heads and in our words and in ourself, and then we never, ever allow for the silence. We always want to keep grasping. So I love the fact that we need to kind of say to people, it's the mystery. You know, all those definitions, all those catechisms, all our beliefs, all our propositional statements, our creedal statements are about this mystery. You know, let's not forget that. And sometimes some people don't even recognize that. They just think it's about the creed. Yeah. Carl, I remember when I read your book, Befriending Silence, uh, I remember appreciating how cognizant you were of gendered language. And I remember you actually, I think you wrote something in the in the preface of that book um, regarding that. Correct me if I'm wrong. But I also just want to mention that I really, I can tell that in this book, um, there's a significant number of women and men. And I think that that's really important. Um, and I appreciate, you know, a book like this kind of hosting the variety and um, just being true to the voices of, of women mystics in this as well. Well, yeah. And I, I wish there were more to begin with. You know, mm -hmm. I think it's still if you if you if you tallied it up, it's probably still about 70, 30. Mm. But, you know, it's, it's like take the desert mothers and fathers, for example. We have we have a literature of over 100 desert fathers we have the literature of, I think it's three or four desert mothers. Yeah. Wow. And you, and you can't tell me that there weren't desert mothers out there. That right. It's just that right. they've, they've basically been erased from history. And it's just, mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's one of the great tragedies. But, but once you get in the Middle Ages, and I think Hildegard of Bingen was the real pioneer here. But once you get into the Middle Ages, what you find are women who recognize that the doors of ecclesiastical power are, are shut to them, are nailed shut, 
bolted shut, cemented over. But when they can speak out of the authority of their own, and here's that word, their own experience, <laughs> it opened doors that were otherwise locked shut. And, you know, and that some women paid for it with their lives. Uh, Marguerite Peretti was was burned at the stake. She was accused of heresy. And, and I'm not a scholar of her work, but it's my understanding from, from commentaries that I've read that her theology is no more daring than John of the Crosses, who mm. comes about 100, 200 years later, but he's a man. He's a doctor of the church. So, right. so, you, so you do run into, into that kind of issue. Mm. But even, even so, when you think about Okay, Hildegard of Bingen, Julian of Norwich, Hadovich, Catherine of Siena, Catherine of Genoa, Matilda, Teresa of Avila, of course, the, the Mechtilds, Mechtilda yeah. of Magdeburn, of Hackeborn, Gertrude the Great, you know, again and again and again, these women in the Middle Ages who find their voice through the mystery and through their own in-the-heart encounter with the mystery. And see, and, and Hildegard was brilliant. I mean, the story of Hildegard is just very instructive. She corresponded with Bernard of Clairvaux and sent him a book containing her visions and played the game. And she said, do you think this is an appropriate book for me to be you know, disseminating? He wrote her a very measured letter back, basically saying, you know, well, I need to pray about this. I need to be in discernment about it, but I would encourage you to carry on with what you're doing. But then what he does is he, he, he gives her writings to the Pope, who happened to have been a novice under him. So I think it was Eugenius III. Eugenius then reads Hildegard's writings, and he issues a papal bull saying she's the real deal. Right. Mm. So, so, you know, so Hildegard, and she kind of kicks open the door. Right. And so, uh, so other women following her don't necessarily have that kind of papal imprimatur, if you will, but, but the precedent had been set. Now, you know, you read Teresa of Avila, and, it, and, and it's difficult to read Teresa in 21st century with a 21st century sensibility because she sounds like she suffers from poor self-esteem. Mm -hmm. She's constantly saying, you know, I am just a worm. I am a stupid woman. What do I know? But there is, it, it, there's a the rhetoric game, though. there. It's a rhetoric. There's a, there's a re exactly. There's a rhetoric. There's a rhetoric of trying to dodge the Inquisition. That's right. And she's basically, she's basically kind of littering her book with these little kind of markers that's saying, you know, you can't accuse me of heresy. I'm too stupid to be a heretic. Right. And then she makes these daring theological statements. Right. And, you know, so she's so, so, so by the time we get to Teresa, and this is the 16th century, Hildegard is what, the 12th century, 11th or 12th yeah. century? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, 12th century, because um, she was a contemporary of Bernard's. By the time we get to, to, to Teresa of Avila, she's playing the gender game to her own advantage. Right. So, so it's fascinating you seeing that rhetoric. But of course, then, then things begin to shift with the Reformation, that basically the Reformation represents, it's, a, you know, it's an argument about many things, but it's an argument about authority. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the Catholic side continues to place authority in the magisterium, in the teaching authority of the church. The Protestant side says, no, 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 the authority is in the text, sola scriptura. 
But what that does is that erases any possibility for the authority of the personal experience. Mm -hmm. And so, and so you find on the, on the Catholic side is you find mystics begin to be treated as heretics. Uh, you know, uh, Madame Guillaume is, is a classic example, the whole quietest kind of controversy in France in the what's late 16th, early 17th century. And on the Protestant side, mysticism is just erased. I think it's there, but none of them claim, claim themselves as mystics. They certainly don't appeal to the mystical tradition because, of course, in Protestantism, it's sola scriptura. Right. So it's almost like every generation of contemplatives and mystics have to reinvent the wheel. They, right. they, you know, they, can't, they can't appeal to Bernard de Clairvaux or to, or to Augustine or to pseudo, pseudo Dionysius. They have to appeal to scripture. And right. so they're constantly reinventing the wheel. And, and only in the 20th century, really, 19th to the 20th century, have we begun to crawl out of that, that kind of desert period. So I am not an authority on the Orthodox Church, but I think, you know, it'd be fascinating to look at the history of spiritual theology in Orthodoxy between the 16th and 19th century, because they didn't have that that split like we had in the West. Yeah, they so. have other issues, though, because of, 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 <laughs> because <laughs> of nationalism, nationalism, yeah, politics but, and everything, the weirdness but of back that. But yeah. back to your comment, um, uh, Cassie, you know, and I think that, that for women today, you know, and certainly, you know, many, many feminist scholars, you know, I'm thinking of Grace Jansen, who wrote a wonderful book about Julian of Norwich, you know, many feminist scholars have appealed to the mystics, you know, obviously, you know, some people say they're proto-feminist, that may be a little anachronistic, but I, I think they're certainly, they're, they're heroes or heroines, if you want to use gender language, of the faith that I think are inspirations to women, to feminists, but also to men. Because again, living in a culture that was hostile to this idea of speaking out of your own experience, and they, you know, they dared to do it. So they're, they're, they're heroes as far as I'm concerned. So, so along with that, and thank you for sharing that, along with that, out of everyone that appears that you quote in, in this book, who would you name as your male and female hero of mysticism? Well, the the woman is easy because it's Julian of Norwich, you know, and I, I've mentioned, and, and again, she's one of the ones who appears in every single chapter of the book. She only wrote one text. Well, she wrote, it's like she wrote a short version and then she spends the rest of her life kind of revising it and it eventually became much longer, but it's essentially the same text. It's the story of her having a, a single night of visionary experience, but then years of theological reflection following that. So, so she has the encounter and then she reflects on the encounter on the male side, probably, probably, and I'm probably mispronouncing this, but, but, um, I'll, I'll use his, his English first name, John Roisbrook, who was a Flemish mystic. He follows, um, Meister Eckhart and Meister Eckhart was a Dominican mystic, again, very daring in his thinking who, who got into trouble. And there were some political reasons why he got into trouble in the church. And what, what Roisbrecht does, he comes a generation or two later, it's like he manages to be as daring as Eckhart, but to use language that is more orthodox, quote unquote. So, so he's a safer mystic to your kind of, to your Catholic theologians. And he's a blessed, he's, he's actually been beatified in the church, which is, you know, maybe not quite as 
big of a stamp of approval as being a doctor of the church, but it's still, you know, it shows he's respected. And yet when you sit down and really read his theology, and he's talking about deification, he's talking about this sense of, of God and me that any line separating them fall away. Mm-hmm. But 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 doing it in in language that's just very beautiful, very poetic. You know, I I don't know. I would love to read. You know, in the original, I guess Flemish was what he wrote in. But I just don't don't have the language. But even an English translation is just so so beautiful. And again, deeply ethical. You know, that it's not just love of God. It's not just me and God having this little kind of cozy love affair. But it's out of that love, the divine love comes comes service and comes relationship with with the world and so it's it's just very holistic so, yeah. so those are my, my two heroes. But, you know, it's like asking who are your favorite kids. You know, there so many of the mystics have so many beautiful <laughs> things to say. And I should also say a lot of the mystics are flawed. Of course. You know, that, that, that I think it's important not to deify the mystics in the sense of, oh, my God, you know, Julian of Norwich said it, therefore it must be true. You know, I, I think that's a mistake. I think that, that read, reading the mystics with a critical eye and saying, you know, okay, you know, sometimes, you know, Catherine of Siena can be read as anti-Semitic. And, you know, anti-Semitic is contrary to the gospel. That's not okay. But yet, that's part of, part of her rhetoric. And so, you know, we have to kind of call that out without saying, therefore, oh, you know, you know she's totally useless. I mean, I know people, you know, Cassidy, to bring somebody close to your heart, I know people who don't like Merton because of the, the, the situation, the affair with the nurse. Right. And of course, I think that humanizes, but, you know, but there's this, again, this, this kind of rhetoric in the church that we expect our saints to be perfect. And, and that's just, that's bad theology, you know? And so I want to know, I want to know their flaws. I want to know their Mm -hmm. shadow that, that humanizes them as far as I'm concerned. So, and yet they still have amazingly wise things to say to us. Yeah, well, it's anti-biblical, too, to say that they have to be perfect, because every holy person—you just, just have to go through the Hebrew Scriptures. And I, whenever I teach Hebrew Scriptures, I say to the people, like, listen, King David, a man after God's own heart. Let's look at the things this guy has done, right? I mean, Don't get me started. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's unbelievable. Like, Noah, yeah. you know, Noah's a drunkard. You know, Moses, you know, it, it, it's, it's all of them. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. So there's no sense of it has to be perfect. Right. But, you know, to go back— you know, I, I want to give a little plug. Meister Eckhart, for all his, quote, troubles, uh, there's been push in the church to redeem him. And uh, even Pope Benedict XVI uh, is a fan of Meister Eckhart. And there's been people saying, you know, his condemnation is not really the condemnation of him. It's only been of a few of his writings, a few words here and there. He's not got it wrong. And we and they he got condemned for some political reasons. Let's pull this language. And let's and there's been people pushing, like, let's make Meister Eckhart a doctor of the church, because like that's he really mm-hmm. gets it. So it and there's been movement. It's funny, you know, if you're a geek and you pay attention to like weird, fringy stuff like that, which I do sometimes, I, I, there is a movement. Uh, and so I wouldn't be surprised. If 10, 15, 20, 30 years from now you hear Meister Eckhart is Saint Meister Eckhart, you know, it wouldn't be surprising well, to me. I and I I think that Teilhard should yep. be a doctor of the church, but yeah. you know, we're, we're a long way away that, from that that's because, take because a he longer, was yeah. so far ahead of the game that it's just people were frightened of him. And there's know? still people who don't like him. I still, I, there's still scholars who rip into him about his really bad theology. And I mean, and it's a debate that's still happening. So, I mean, it's, yeah. it's interesting. We have to be getting near the end of time here. And I want to ask about your quote on page 128, where you quote, 
from Luke's gospel, and you actually cite, and you there's a footnote that says, this is, I believe, your translation of, mm-hmm. of Jesus. And I love it because talk about somebody being bold. You've decided to be bold. So the translation here that you have is the light of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye sees singly or non-dually, you even put, your whole body will shine like the sun. But if your eyes sees dualistically, looking for evil to judge, your whole body shall be full of darkness. And that's Jesus's words in Luke 11. I want to ask you, why did you, why did you feel you wanted to be playful with that quote? Well, let, I love it. let me, I love it. Yeah. Let, let me just, just read, read the footnote. This is a new translation for this book. This verse gets rendered many different ways and almost none of the versions make much sense. Most timid modern translations have Jesus using healthy and unhealthy to describe the eyes. But the original Greek words from the text, haplus and poneros, mean single and wicked, respectively. Reading this from a contemplative mystical perspective, Jesus appears to be drawing a distinction between seeing non-dually or singly and seeing dualistically, judgmentally, i.e. looking for something wicked to judge. And, you know, I don't think that's the only way you could read that text, but I, but I think that you could make the argument that that's part of what Jesus is suggesting. You know, there's, you know, Richard Rohr wrote this book called The Naked Now, and the subtitle is Learning to See How the Mystics See. And, and you know, and then go back to that quote from Meister Eckhart, our friend Meister Eckhart, that's at the beginning of my book. It's on page two. You know, the eye with which I see God is exactly the same eye with which God sees me. My eye and God's eye are one eye, one seeing, one knowledge, and one love. And so this idea that, that you know, when we talk about mysticism means entering into the mystery, it means entering into silence, entering into paradox, entering into unknowing, entering into ambiguity. Well, what do we do once we enter into that? And I think what the mystics have been saying, what my strike card is saying is learn to see like God sees, right. learn to see with the eye, with the eye of love. That's right. Uh, I think William Johnston, the, the Jesuit priest who lived most of his life in Tokyo, wrote a book called The Inner Eye of Love. And I think that that's, you know, again, right back to this whole kind of thing, you know, learn to see how the mystics see, as Richard Rohr puts it. And so I'm suggesting that and, and I'm being speculative here. I'm, I'm not a scholar. But, but I'm suggesting that Jesus, when Jesus was teaching this, that, that ended up, and it's also in the Sermon on the Mount, that, that he seems to be saying, look, you know, you can use your eyes one of two ways. You can use your eyes to gather in, and if you do that, you're going to be filled with light. But if you use your eyes to separate, to divide, to say this is good, this is bad, then sooner or later you're just going to be filled with darkness yourself. Right. And um, so, so that, that's really what I, what I was trying to convey in kind of a pithy way. And I'm, you know, maybe next week we'll have a Greek scholar on the, on the show and he'll, he'll rip me to shreds. But, well, you know. it's beautiful. <laughs> I mean, I mean, we can get into, I know a little more Greek than you and we can do that at another time. But like, but what I find interesting, I like is that connects what you said. It's not mysticism of me hanging out with my God and feeling warm and fuzzy. If it is about a seeing and a transformed seeing or a transfigured seeing, then it becomes ethics. 
because once you've once you've had this united vision and you have this approach, you can realize, well, that that should be my shift. My identity shift should be the united vision. And now I treat brothers and and en- enemies and et cetera in a very different way. It becomes an ethical way to live. Uh, and I, I I think that's where you make your connection there. So it's it's brilliant that you you kind of you put that in the quote there. So. Well, I mean, this has been a wonderful thing, and we're we've gone for a long time here. So I I don't know if there's anything left to say. If if you, I well, could you tell us where we can get the book? Give us book information, well, Carl. Well, come into the Encountering Silence uh, website and click on the show notes. It'll be right there. Um, I can promise that since I'm the one that writes the show notes, I'll I'll see to it myself. <laughs> um, you can obviously. You know, I'm a real strong believer in supporting your local bookstore. So I would love for people to visit their local bookstore, especially independent bookstores, and and either special order it or by the grace of God, it might even be there. Um, and then, of course, all your usual, you know, Barnes and Noble, uh, Amazon, you know, your your online resources. My personal website, CarlMcComan.com, will have it as well. So, um, so yeah, you know, go buy the book, please. Yes. So. <laughs> Thank you for letting uh, letting us put you in the hot seat today, Carl. Yes, well, exactly. I'm passionate about this topic, so and it's and it's fun to to you know obviously you know we have a pretty high level of trust with the three of us, so it's fun to kind of go a little bit deeper than I often do, and um, it might not be obvious on. At, at the surface, what is the relationship between mysticism and silence? And I hope we've we've made the case for that today, all three of us. Right. And, um, you know, whether it's from that word mute, you know, that Greek word that we get mute from, all the way down into some of the other things that we've talked about. So it's just been an mm-hmm. honor to do that. So Thank you so much. The Little Book of Christian Mysticism, Essential Wisdom of Saints, Seers, and Sages by Carl McCullman. It is definitely worth the read. Thank you guys for another episode that's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Encountering Silence podcast. If you enjoy our ongoing conversation about the beauty of silence and its meaning in our lives, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or at our website, www.encounteringsilence.com. You can subscribe to our email list at our website. Connect with us on social media, on Twitter at Silence Podcast, or on Facebook at Encountering Silence. And please visit www.patreon.com forward slash Encountering Silence to become a patron of this podcast. Your financial support will allow us to continue creating new episodes and spreading the message of how vital silence is to our social, spiritual, and physical well-being.